Good morning, everyone. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to go ahead and read verses 10 through 20. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Holy Scripture says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that the ancient words, the God-breathed words, the trustworthy words would be imparted to our hearts this morning. We pray that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding, conviction, comfort, and encouragement. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by just doing a simple walkthrough of the passage. Uh, First, Abram faces a pressing need. There was a famine in the land, and the famine was severe, verse 10. As surely as God brought Abram from Ur to Canaan, you, you can be exactly where God wants you to be, as Abram was in Canaan, and in that place face severe trials. Do do not assume that the presence of trials means that you're in the wrong place. Second, Abram comes up with a solution. Go to Egypt. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, verse 10. Third, with that solution came an anticipated problem. The problem that Abram anticipates is recounted in verses 11 and 12. Abram is traveling with his wife, Sarai. We know from other passages that Sarai is pushing 70 years of age. Um, 
But her 70 is not your 70. Uh, <laughs> listen, listen, stay with me. She lived, she lived for 127 years, okay? So objectively, objectively speaking, she was in the beauty of middle age. That's just, it's just, it's the truth. It's right here. Um, Abram was concerned. Man, I didn't, I didn't think it would be that funny. <clears throat> um, anyway, once in a while we get a laugh. Abram was, Abram was concerned that the Egyptians would desire Sarai on account of her beauty. They would assume that Abram is Sarai's wife, and then they would kill Abram in order to have free access to Sarai. Abram begins to think about how not to get killed. He obviously did not think very highly of the Egyptians' uh, moral standards. Okay, fourth, since Abram doesn't like the way that the probability of his being murdered is playing out in his head, he devises a shrewd tactic to address the anticipated problem. Abram tells Sarai to tell the Egyptians that she is his sister, verse 13. Then the Egyptians, now thinking that Abram doesn't have a husband's claim on Sarai, will feel free to engage with her. As a result, Abram's life will be spared, and beyond that, maybe he will even be treated favorably on account of Sarai. Fifth, Abram's shrewd tactic is implemented with apparent success in verses 14 to 16. It plays out just the way that he had anticipated. The Egyptians beheld Sarai's beauty, and some prominent Egyptians, the princes of Pharaoh, spoke highly to Pharaoh about Sarai's beauty. And not only did Pharaoh spare Abram's life, but Pharaoh actually treated Abram well and enriched Abram on account of the beloved Sarai that he had taken into his house. And by the way, there's a, there's a nice little lesson here that I want to share with you um, that I got from commentary by Henry Morris. He, he wrote this, very wise words. He said, and, and, and keep this in mind because, you know, we, we, we're always facing challenges to temptation or compromise or to work things out in a fleshly manner. So listen to this. Henry Morris wrote, it often seems at first that a compromise between the methods of the world and God's will and promises works out very well. Until, that is, God finally has to deal with them in chastisement, forcing them out of the compromising position back into the walk of true faith. End quote. So, don't automatically assume that outward prosperity or the apparent success of your plan means that God is pleased with the course of action that you have undertaken. He might not be. Sixth, Abram's shrewd plan uh, proves to be problematic. Although it is going well with Abram in verse 16, it is not going well with Pharaoh in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And the contrast between verse 16 and verse 17 is profound. In verse 16, Pharaoh blesses Abram because of Sarai. In verse 17, the Lord afflicts Pharaoh because of Sarai. The Lord knew the truth. 
But Pharaoh didn't until the truth was revealed to him. And so finally, the seventh uh, part of our text is that Pharaoh confronts Abram, returns Sarai to him, and promptly deports them. Verses 18 to 20. Somehow, in conjunction with being afflicted, Pharaoh realized the truth about Abram and Sarai, that they were man and wife. And so Pharaoh reproves Abram. What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? It is always a sad day when a pagan has to call out the bad conduct of a believer. In any case, Pharaoh, whose house was suffering under the affliction of the Lord, wanted the source of his troubles to be removed. Thus Pharaoh deported Abram, take her and go, verse 19, and then verse 20, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. After deportation, the beginning of chapter 13 indicates that Abram and Sarai returned to the Negev in southern Canaan. So that's a brief walkthrough of the text. Now, the question we need to ask before we get into the lessons from the text is how should we assess Abram's actions? Well, we can begin by simply looking at the bad fruit of Abram's actions. In Genesis 12:3, the Lord promised to bless those who bless Abram and promised that in Abram all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, at a surface level, just compare Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 12.16 and 17. Pharaoh blessed Abram on a superficial level, verse 16, but Pharaoh did not get blessed by the Lord. Instead, Pharaoh got afflicted by the Lord. Abram had gone, gone down to Egypt, but instead of being a blessing to Pharaoh's family, Abram became a source of trouble to Pharaoh's family, and that should alert us to the fact that something is not right here. Something is off. And one of the things that is wrong is that Pharaoh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Abram, Abram chose to misrepresent the truth, um, to misrepresent reality to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh, to truly bless Abram, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, to truly bless Abram means to bless Abram for the Lord's sake. In Pharaoh's case, however, he was blessing Abram for Sarai's sake, but his understanding of who Sarai was in relationship to Abram was based on a lie. And Abram is the one who bears responsibility for this lie, even though he had prevailed upon Sarai to actually tell the lie. If Abram is going to be a blessing, as Genesis 12, 2 envisions, he must learn to walk in the truth. As it stands, however, Abram's conduct in verses 11 to 16 is way off the mark. And you might legitimately wonder whether it was even wise for Abram to journey down to Egypt in the first place. The commentaries that I read are divided on that question. But putting that to the side, there are at least six interconnected sins that we ought to see uh, that Abram is guilty of. First, instead of continuing to believe that God will fulfill his promises to him, in which case he's not going to be killed by the Egyptians down in Egypt, Abram succumbs to fear that he might be killed by the Egyptians. In that moment, God's promise seems really small. 
and the Egyptians seem big and strong. Abram temporarily loses his grip on reality, on God's promise. Second, the second sin, Abram conceives of a lie. Later in Genesis chapter 20, we learn that Sarai actually is Abram's half-sister. Genesis 20, verse 12. That fact, however, doesn't change the fact that Abram, Abram's plan involves misrepresenting his relationship with Sarai. Even if one can reason that Sarai can honestly say that she is Abram's sister because she is his half-sister, that doesn't change the fact that the intent of saying that is to communicate that she is not Abram's wife, and that is a lie. Third, the third sin, is that after conceiving a lie, Abram prevails upon his wife to tell it. (laughs) Hey, I've got a plan. You carry it out. Abram gives birth to a lie, and then he turns his wife into a liar. I mean, Sarai does bear some responsibility, but Abram bears more responsibility. Sin number four, Abram's misrepresentation of reality leads his wife into a compromising situation. Sarai is Abram's wife, and she has no business being taken into another man's house. Do you understand? But this is exactly what happened. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, verse 15, and Pharaoh took her into his house to marry her, as indicated in verse 19. Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Abram's plan has turned his wife not only into a liar, but also put her into the position of an adulteress. And fifthly, for the same reasons, Abram's plan put Pharaoh into the position of an adulterer. Whether or not they actually committed physical adultery, I don't know. The text doesn't say, and it's beside the point. The point is is that this situation is, is totally not right. Sixth, A sixth sin, uh, Andrew Steinman identified this sin. He said that Abram accepted property gained under false pretenses. And that's exactly right. Abram's material gains from Pharaoh, which were extensive, he was greatly enriched by Pharaoh, but it came about as a result of his misrepresenting his relationship to Sarai. Those were Abram's sins. And the effect of those sins is that affliction and great plagues were brought upon Pharaoh and his house, verse 17. At the same time, he troubled his own house by compromising the integrity of his marriage and the integrity of his wife. And why did Abram do all this? To save his own skin. Although Abram didn't think it out out this way, the fact is he was willing to compromise the truth He was willing to compromise his wife's integrity and purity. He was willing to compromise the integrity of his marriage. And he was willing to compromise Pharaoh's integrity in order to save and prosper his own life. That sounds like the anti-gospel. Enrich myself at the expense of others. And so all of a sudden, the Abram of great faith who obeyed the Lord's call by journeying from Ur to Canaan and who built altars to the Lord to worship Him in the land of Canaan, now Abram is seen to be a, a folly-prone sinner. Abram has much to learn. Abram has to learn that he has to learn to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances. 
Abram has to learn that God's way is not to save yourself at the expense of others, but rather to lay down your life for the sake of others. Abram has to learn that the way we participate in advancing God's kingdom is not by distorting the truth, but rather by declaring the truth. Abram has to learn to conduct himself in a way so that he doesn't need a pagan king to remind him of what is true. So Abram plays the fool in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. Now, why is this in the Bible? Well, this is in the Bible to bring you and me encouragement in our walk with the Lord. And there is a lot of encouragement in this passage. And I want to share with you three important and encouraging lessons from these verses. Okay, so here's the first lesson. Even after you have received the Lord's call and begun to walk in obedience to the Lord, you still have much need to learn and grow and be transformed. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Abram received the call of God to leave his homeland and to go to the land that the Lord would show him. Genesis 12, 4 says, so Abram went as the Lord told him, and we know that Abram went because he trusted the Lord. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. And after Abram arrived in the land of promise, he built an altar to the Lord. Genesis 12, 7. And again, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 12, 8. Thus, in Genesis 12, 1 to 9, we learn that Abram is a man of faith. He's a man who trusts God and obeys God's instruction. And he's a man who worships the Lord and calls upon the Lord's name. At the same time, Abram was beset by the same kinds of weaknesses and faults that are often found in us. After he had begun to walk with God in Genesis 12, 1 to 9, Abram showed considerable foolishness in this passage, verses 10 to 20. True believers who have begun to follow the Lord on the path of obedience still have much need for growth. Uh, when we had our baptism service a few weeks ago, I made the point that, that baptism marks a beginning, not, not, the, not the end goal, but it's rather the beginning. The assumption is that the one who is baptized must be taught over a lifetime to observe all that the Lord has commanded us. And part of learning to observe all that the Lord has commanded us is the recognition that we have areas in our life that are not pleasing to the Lord. It is often in the face of pressing needs that our foolishness and immaturity become apparent. Our blind spots are often revealed to us as the pressures of life bear down upon us and our true colors show. And it is precisely because believers have much room for growth that we are told such things as, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Romans 6.12. It's not an automatic thing. You, you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a battle and you have to walk by faith in the next moment. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32 tells us to put away 
all those things that pertain to our sinful past and to put on the characteristics that are pleasing to the Lord. Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. These and many other passages assume that we are immature. We are not yet fully conformed to the image of Christ. We still have pockets of weakness and sin and vulnerabilities in our heart and life. And my point in telling you all this is not to give the impression that it's, it's okay to be sinful and foolish. It's not okay. My point, rather, is to communicate a dose of realism. Like Abram, there are times when you as a true believer will play the fool and engage in sinful conduct. If you take this as a license to sin however you please, then you have a deeper problem. If you have a hard heart toward the Lord and have every intention of sinning whenever and however you like, then what I'm saying here is not meant to encourage you. Instead, I'm attempting to encourage those of you who actually do have a heart for the Lord. And your intention is to follow the Lord, and yet you are painfully aware of your failings. You face a pressing need or difficult circumstance, and you cook up a solution, and that solution that you cooked up only serves to create additional problems and makes you look like an idiot. And even a rank pagan like Pharaoh is the one who has to call you out. When that happens, when you fail it's possible for you to get overly discouraged or even to lose heart or be paralyzed uh, because of your failing. By showing you Abram's bad example, I want to guard you from taking yourself or your presumed maturity level too seriously. You will fail, but God's mercies will never fail. That's the first lesson. Here's the second lesson. You have to learn to live with integrity within God's blessing before you can be a true source of blessing to others. There's a sobering tension between Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and Genesis 12, 17. I already, I already mentioned it, and I want to mention it again and kind of work out some application here. In Genesis 12, 2, we learn that the Lord's plan is for Abram to be a blessing. That is, to be a blessing to others. In Genesis 12, 3, we learn that the Lord's plan is to bless all the families of the earth in and through Abram. But then, just 14 verses later, we discover that, that Abram's impact on one Egyptian family, that is, on Pharaoh and his house, is that Pharaoh's family is being afflicted and plagued. What's going on? Of course, one could point to the fact that in Genesis 12, 3, it's clear that God's promise to bless others through Abram is not absolute, for the Lord promises to curse anyone who dishonors Abram. And you could argue, as one commentator does, that Pharaoh is in fact dishonoring Abram by taking Abram's wife into his house. Now, I, don't, I do not disagree with that assessment. Objectively speaking, Pharaoh is dishonoring Abram, Abram as well as Sarai. And yet the fact remains that Pharaoh is dishonoring Abram in large measure because Abram is lying. 
Abram is dishonoring the truth. He's dishonoring his own marriage. He's dishonoring his wife. He's dishonoring Pharaoh. And so it is, it's Abram's culpable role in Pharaoh's affliction that provides a lesson for us. You have to learn to live with integrity within the sphere of God's blessing before you can become a true blessing to others. The Lord calls His people to be a blessing to the world, doesn't He? You are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5.13. You are the light of the world, Matthew 5.14. Being salty salt, salt that hasn't lost its taste, and being bright, shining light, not putting our light under a basket, but letting our good deeds shine forth in the presence of the world. To do that, you actually have to live faithfully as a disciple, putting, one, putting one's own self first as Abram did, seeking to preserve your own life at the expense of others as Abram did, distorting the truth as Abram did. It's not God's will for us. The salt and light teaching in Matthew 5 13 to 16, is surrounded by the Lord's instruction that we be humble and meek, that we be hungry and thirsty for righteousness, that we be merciful and pure in heart, that we make peace and be eager to be reconciled one to another, and that we be truthful and faithful. Those are the kind of things, the character qualities that we're supposed to embody and express, and that's how we effectively be salt and light. And sometimes in the face of difficulties in life or trials, like Abram, we can rush into imprudent courses of action that end up making us a source of trouble to other people instead of being a blessing. At other times, in our excitement to bless the world or impact our community, we might forget that having God on our side is not an excuse for bad character and misconduct. Paul had it right when he said, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 4.2 Having and proclaiming the truth is not the only thing that matters. How you carry it. How you handle it. How you conduct yourself matters too. Paul told Titus that it's important for God's people to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior with good character and a gracious demeanor, Titus 2.10. Bottom line, as you fulfill God's call upon your life, as, as, as we fulfill God's call upon us to be a blessing to other people and to be a blessing to the world, we cannot bypass good character. In fact, it is precisely because Jesus the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, is without any moral defect that He is able to be the source of eternal salvation and ultimate blessing for everyone who trusts in Him. As God calls us into fellowship with Jesus, we get to share in extending the blessing and the grace and the peace of the Messiah to the world, but this requires that we ourselves be transformed from the inside out so that we are actually reflecting the character of our 
Lord. Abram was not reflecting the character of the Lord to Pharaoh and to the princes of Pharaoh and to the other Egyptians that got to see everything that that went down. You have to learn to live with integrity within the sphere of God's blessing before you can be a true source of blessing to others. Finally, we come to the third lesson. If I had to pick and choose, I would say that this is the primary lesson of our passage. This is the cream of the crop. And here it is. If the Lord's favor is upon you, He will bless you even when you blow it. Andrew Steinman puts it like this. God's commitment to His promise overrides human weakness. Ultimately, the story of Abram and his descendants is not about their transgressions, but about God's grace. And that's what this passage is about. This passage is about God's grace and God's promise and God's faithfulness in spite of Abram's foolishness. Think about it. Abram decides to plot and scheme in a way that makes sense to him, and it won't be the last time he does this, Abram plots and schemes and manipulates and puts his wife into the house of a foreigner, puts other people's integrity and welfare at risk. Humanly speaking, Abram is the human cause of the afflictions and plagues that fall on Pharaoh's house. But here's the deal. Since God has called Abram and claimed Abram for his own sovereign purpose, God's promise will prevail over Abram's fickleness. The fulfillment of God's promise does not depend on Abram. It depends on God. If Abram becoming a great nation, Genesis 12, 2, depended on Abram, if Abram being blessed and having a great name, Genesis 12, 3, depended on Abram, if Abram becoming a source of blessing to all the families of the earth, Genesis 12, 3, depended on Abram, then Genesis 12, 10 to 20 presents us with cause for great disappointment because Abram has some deep flaws. But Genesis 12, 10 to 20 isn't in the Bible to leave us discouraged, but rather to give us encouragement and hope. And the great encouragement is this. The Lord has Abram's back when Abram least deserves it. The Lord preserves and prospers Abram and afflicts and plagues Pharaoh even though Pharaoh has acted with greater integrity in this particular situation. I'm not saying Pharaoh was an otherwise faithful man. He he most certainly wasn't. But in this situation, he showed more integrity than Abram had. The Lord did not say, I will bless you as long as you don't blow it. The Lord did not say, I will make your name great as long as you don't do anything to spoil your reputation. The Lord did not say, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed as long as you keep yourself squeaky clean wherever you go. Now, I'm not encouraging you to make a concerted effort to blow it or to spoil your reputation or to throw moral caution to the wind. None of that. But the truth of the matter, the truth of the matter is that to one degree or another, You already have blown it in certain ways and at certain times. And it's highly probable that you'll blow it again, quite possibly this afternoon. At such times, 
You shouldn't be devastated as if God's promise is null and void because you fell into sin. Instead, you should be humbled and sobered and encouraged by the thought that the Lord will see you through your stupidity. And He will keep His promises to you and He will continue to lead you in the way you should go. The Lord relates to you on the basis of His promise and because of His promise, He will overrule your deviations and failures. Genesis 12, 16 tells us that Pharaoh dealt well with Abram for Sarai's sake, but, but the deeper reality is that the Lord dealt well with Abram because of His promises to Abram. And this truth that the Lord continues to work out His promise of blessing upon His people even when they blow it, is thematic throughout the Scriptures. This isn't just an isolated passage here. Jacob blew it by manipulating his brother and then later manipulating his father. Joseph's brothers blew it when they sold Joseph into slavery and then lied about it. Aaron blew it with the golden calf fiasco. Moses blew it by striking the rock. David blew it in the matter of Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. James and John blew it when they sought to exalt themselves over their fellow disciples. Peter blew it when he denied that he even knew the Lord. The church in Corinth was blowing it on multiple fronts. And yet Paul thanks God for His grace to the church in Corinth and tells them that the Lord will sustain them to the end. 1 Corinthians 1.8 The truth of the matter is that being a beloved beneficiary of God's sovereign mercy depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, Romans 9.16. No amount of human will or exertion on Abram's part could have qualified him to be a recipient of God's favor. And then, once the promise-keeping God called and claimed Abram as his own, Abram's foolishness could not undo it. God's definitive Irreversible and prevailing grace is not meant to be an encouragement to people who don't have a heart for God. If you don't have a heart for God, you need to get a new heart. But if you do have a heart for God, and if you have some honest self-awareness, you have a tender conscience, you see a sizable gap between the perfection of God and your own imperfections, and you see the high calling of God and Christ Jesus, and that you realize your, your own attainments are pretty low thus far, then God's definitive, irreversible, and prevailing grace is indeed meant to encourage you. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103, verses 10 to 14. Fathers, don't you keep on showing compassion to your children even after they have blown it again that's 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 what the father is like that's what the our heavenly father is like except that his level of compassion and generosity and patience far exceeds anything that we are capable of 
And in His great love, the Father sent His dear Son to make atonement for our sins and to be the guarantee of all of His covenant promises. And thus we can sing these words from the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. For my life He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with Him to endless life, He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when He comes at last. You've got to understand. Some people have a really distorted view of, 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 what, of the heart of God. The Lord was not secretly waiting for Abram to fail so that he could let him have it. Just the opposite. The Lord was graciously watching over Abram to keep his promises to Abram, even and especially when Abram would blow it. That was the Lord's settled disposition toward Abram. And that is the Lord's settled disposition toward you if He has called you and claimed you as His own. The Lord isn't secretly waiting for you to fail so that He can let you have it, as if that's what He really wants to do. On the contrary, the Lord is watching over you in love and has every intention, and it is a glad-hearted intention, He has every intention to bring every promise to fruition, even and especially when you make a royal mess down in Egypt. Be like borrowing from the Apostle John. I preach these things to you so that you may not make a royal mess down in Egypt, but if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If the Lord's favor is upon you, He will hold you fast even when you temporarily lose your grip on His promise. He will keep you in His good grace even when you least deserve it, and grace is never deserved anyway. And though there be many ups and downs on your part, He will, at the last, bring you safely into His everlasting home. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged today that you are a gracious God, that your faithfulness never ceases, and that all of your promises will be fulfilled. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.